Thanks for downloading Development Drums number 47. My name is Owen Barder at the Centre for Global Development and my guest today is my friend and colleague Todd Moss who is a Senior Fellow and Chief Operating Officer at CGD by day and a successful fiction writer by night. Todd writes in his novels about Africa and international relations and coups and kidnapping and political analysis and diplomacy and we'll be talking about why and how he uses fiction to get his message across. Todd, welcome to Development Drums. Great to be on the show, Owen. Thanks for having me. Todd, your books have a hero called Judd Riker, who is a policy analyst who finds himself working at State Department and he helps solve crises, a kind of Indiana Jones of the political world. Now, you became Deputy Assistant Secretary for Africa in the State Department uh, in 2007-2008, and you were also sent off to reverse a coup. So to what extent are your books autobiographical? (laughs) Uh, Everyone asks me that. You you know, um, I I wrote the first book, The Golden Hour, uh, in large part as just a fun exercise. I'd left government. I'd seen some kind of uh, crazy, frustrating, exhilarating things inside the U.S. government. And I actually started writing a nonfiction book about how confused and dysfunctional uh, the U.S. government is when they respond to crises. And I just decided it would be much more fun for me to do it as fiction. And I thought maybe I'd even reach a wider audience that way. And I did use a particular example, um, which was the 2008 coup in Mauritania, uh, as the basis for the plot in the Golden Hour, I said, which is about a coup in Mali, right? But I set I set the Golden Hour in Mali because I thought many more people around the world have heard of Timbuktu, where some of the action takes place, and very few pe- people have heard of Nouakchott, Mauritania. So I did that just uh, for for familiarity. So it, it drew on a true historical ec- uh, episode. It drew a bit on what I saw and heard and wanted to share, but it's still very much fiction. And, uh, you know, before you ask it, Judd Riker is not me, uh, but he does experience some of the things that I went through. So you write, as you say, you wrote the book about a coup in a hypothetical coup in Mali. I say hypothetical, but about six weeks after you published the book, there was, in fact, a coup in Mali with some uncanny similarities with what you wrote that that's just coincidence, right? (laughs) It was coincidence. I mean, it was one of. You know, I, I had been watching Mali quite closely from inside government and continued to watch it from outside. And it actually looked like things were going pretty well. They were less than two months away from the president retiring and they were going to have an election. It looked pretty, it looked pretty good. Uh, so the coup was a terrible disaster for Malians. Um, but it turned out to be a sort of lucky stroke for me in that the news, uh, particularly the BBC reporting on what was going on in Mali, um, I was trying to get an agent at the time, and this agent in New York uh, had was watching uh, BBC about Mali and hadn't realized that there were terrorists and French troops and all of that. Um, and then he realized he had this, this sort of silly manuscript on his desk um, that maybe, uh, maybe he should take on this client. So that's kind of how, how it happened. And and to what extent are, are the experiences of Judd Riker being sent off to Mali to try to reverse this coup? The, 
the idea of, am I giving it away to say that the idea of the golden hour is you only have so long to reverse a coup before it becomes established. So to what extent is that literally true? Is that how the State Department thinks about what happens in the situation of a coup and what it needs to do? Is there a, is that kind of rapid reaction part of how State Department approaches these things? And is that part of what you were doing in Mauritania? <laughs> in a way, I wish. Uh, so what happened, I think it's absolutely true that when you've got a crisis such as a coup, that you have a brief window where if you want to try to influence events, you need to make things happen quickly or else interests start to get entrenched. People start to sort themselves out. And if you show up a month later, uh, it's already uh, the path has already been determined. And certainly the U.S., I saw that people were trying to get moving quickly, but that our system is so convoluted. There's so many people involved and there's so many competing interests that we often get hung up fighting with ourselves and we don't react quickly enough to be influential. And the central tension from the golden hour, uh, which is also what I experienced in Mauritania uh, after the coup in Mauritania, is that you have a country that is a close counterterrorism partner. The military, in the case of, of Mauritania, was quite effective in attacking um, a faction of Al-Qaeda called Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb, and we were working quite closely with them. Well, they also happen to have a democratically elected president, President Abdullahi. Well, what happens when the head of the military, your security partner, overthrows the democratically elected president? You could imagine that there are parts of the U.S. government that would like to carry on working with the, with the coup maker because of security needs, and then there's also parts of the U.S. government that want to prioritize uh, democracy, and they want to try to push out the military and get the democratically elected leader back in. That's precisely where where I was. So the book is, uh, in a way, a fascinating insight into this fight within the government bureaucracy, as you say, different interests, uh, different parts of the U.S. government uh, fighting for, uh, you know, America's long-term interest in democracy versus short-term interest in doing a deal with the military, that part of it is intended to be con telling the reader something about what life is really like in the American government, or is that a fictionalized exaggeration too? I think if anything, I had to simplify it for the purposes of the story. It's more <laughs> convoluted, more complicated, more bitter, and more confusing in real life. And it's both that the U.S. government has multiple interests um, in, in many places. We have legitimate security uh, interests in, in lots of countries, and we have legitimate human rights and democracy and governance concerns. And those sometimes go together, but very often they clash. And it's not just that on a substance level that we have uh, per perhaps to make some trade-offs. Uh, it's also at a tactical level, um, which is that the agencies themselves are set up to fight with each other because they pursue different interests. And so therefore, uh, officials go through all kinds of bureaucratic theater and all kinds of uh, backroom negotiations to try to work that all out. Um, and that was what I tried to capture in the golden hour, not just that Judd Riker um, has a, a dispute with, it's in this case, the defense attache at, at the embassy uh, about what we should do, but actually that 
the way that Judd Riker has to go about kind of winning or trying to outmaneuver these other people is in some ways it's not a front channel debate around a table. The, the conference table meetings are all political theater. It's making deals behind the scenes uh, and uh, sort of outmaneuvering, outthinking your, your opponents. Um, I had actually, I had originally called the, um, called the manuscript back channel. And the way that everything gets done is not by having an open discussion across the table, but by sneakily uh, pre-cooking all of those decisions ahead of time um, by using back channels to make to make things happen. So nobody should be surprised that governments have multiple interests. And indeed, in a sense, that's the point of a government is to resolve competing interests in a way that um, you know over time tries to do justice to them all. That's that's what government is for. What I was surprised by as somebody who's worked in the British government is that the mechanism for resolving those different interests seems so dysfunctional. I mean, you know, perhaps I have a, a a bit of a rose-tinted view about how the British government really works. But, you know, my sense is that you would get people to sit around the table and some, you know, you would write some advice and then a minister would make a decision and then civil servants would go off and loyally do the thing that the minister had decided. And I wondered if this is partly a function of the politicization of the top of the American uh, public service, that, that people are political actors in their own right and um, not merely functionaries of the elected government. Um, I, I was just curious to know from your own experience, you know, whether you think that that, that set of issues about how decisions are making, made is, uh, is something that the American government just has to live with, it's something you could fix, is it, you know, what's the, what underlies that? Well, it's certainly true that we have many more political appointments. They go many layers deeper in the American system than they do in the British government system. I'm not sure that that necessarily is the problem. I, I think even the political appointees, they're probably even more loyal to the top um, than, say, some of the, the civil servants might be, um, because the political appointees are trying to get everything done before their party is thrown out, which is usually every four years. Um, and um, the, the, the civil servants, if they don't like something, they know that they can just wait everyone out. Um, what I do think is different in the U.S. system is that our government is just so almost, you know, almost incomprehensibly huge. Um, it's not just that there are so many people involved. It's that there are so many agencies involved. Uh, and this is getting worse. I'll just give you a ridiculous example. I remember from my time in government, we spent weeks debating uh, whether the small nation of Comoros should be eligible for AGOA benefits. Now, this is a country that had about $80,000 a year in trade with the United States, and we spent many multiples of staff to, uh, of the value of the staff time arguing about this. And there were 12, 13, 14 different agencies involved. Um, and when you get so many people involved in so many decisions, you get, uh, you, you really get gridlock and you get, you don't get the best outcomes. Um, and particularly even within the State Department, we now have a lot of bureaus and special offices that have a single issue. So there's, for example, there's a special office on trafficking in persons. 
that the, the representative for the trafficking in persons office has zero incentive to compromise uh, on trafficking in persons issues. That's all that they're there to do. So if there's a country, let's say, you know, Ethiopia, and we're trying to negotiate a security partnership and economic trade, well, the, the trafficking in persons office can effectively hold things up for a si- single issue. And that kind of sort of dysfunction happens all the time. So I don't want to give the impression to listeners that the book is mainly about, you know, uh, civil servants sending each other memos, but that, that, that dysfunctionality is one of the characters in the book. Is that also true in your new book, Minute Zero, that's just coming out, which is about Zimbabwe? It, it is. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's about the different views between, um, you know, two different people within the same government can look at the same situation and come to very different conclusions. In the case of, in minute zero, you've got um, you've got a part of the government which Judd Riker is part of, which sees an election being stolen and a series of dictators and his thugs uh, suppressing democracy uh, and stealing away the people's uh, rights and opportunities. You've got another part of the State Department uh, that sees that you know what Zimbabwe is not very important. It's actually quiet. People aren't killing each other. Uh, the election's not perfect, but, you know, that's Africa. It's good enough. Let's not make trouble. And that's the sort of central tension there where he's sort of fighting against Washington indifference uh, and trying to trying to get things done. So you've been associated with Zimbabwe for many years. How much of this second book, Minute Zero, which is set in Zimbabwe, is based on reality and how much of that is fiction? Well, once once I knew I had to write a second book, uh, it was immediately obvious that I would I would make it set in Zimbabwe. Um, and um, what had happened is back in 2008, when Zimbabwe had uh, an election and uh, Morgan Changarai won the first round, there was this moment when. Uh, nobody knew what was going to happen next. Mugabe, we knew that Mugabe had, had lost, but it took almost a month for the election results to be, uh, released. And in the, in the interim, uh, the army and the police had gone out and attacked the opposition. Um, and we watched, I watched this from Washington, D.C., going from a high where we thought Mugabe was, was finally gone to a terrible low when we realized he wasn't going to give up. And in fact, he was fighting. And uh, I really, you know, that's something that's that's really hung over me. And I wondered many times, you know, what else might the United States, the State Department in particular, what could we have done, you know, in the days after the election when nobody knew what would happen next? Uh, is there something else we could have done that might have changed history? And that was that's really the question that I tried to uh, answer in a in uh, in a fictional format for minute zero. That's the concept of minute zero. This narrow window when nobody knows what comes next, and you can try to influence events. Um, uh, so it's a fictional story. You know, it's not Robert Mugabe. It's a president named uh, Winston Tinotenda. Uh, he's got a military general named Simba Chimaranga who's controlling things for him looks like he's going to lose an election and there's an internal battle about what what happens next. Um, 
that's where Riker has to work with uh, the opposition and a lobbyist and different people around Zimbabwe to try to uh, alter uh, the course of the election. Um, so some of it is trying to uh, think what might have happened in 2008. Um, uh, and, well, maybe we'll just, maybe you can yeah, do before that. Oh, okay. Uh, so I, I'm going to ask you another yeah. question. So I don't want you to give away the ending, uh, but to what extent do you think it is a good idea for countries like the United States or the United Kingdom to be con- self-consciously trying to engineer a different outcome from the election in Zimbabwe, even you know, well-intentioned, uh, you know, even if you believe that that is the democratic mandate, to what extent do those kinds of interventions uh, work? To what extent do they have unintended consequences? You know, is is that something that you, as you think about what might have been, is that something you wish the United States um, could have, should have done more to change the outcome? Well, I think the phrase regime change is, you know, it's pretty loaded. Um, it's actually used in the book. Um, but, you know, there's something about, you know, clearly there are unintended consequences. We usually don't really understand the circumstances very well. We usually have highly imperfect tools and things often go in directions we don't expect. There's no question about that, that and that it's a very dangerous game to try to uh, intervene in a foreign country um, to, out, to influence the, the outcome of something like a presidential election. At the same time, there's an unusual amount of power and influence that, say, the British ambassador in Zimbabwe or the American ambassador in Zimbabwe wields just by the very size of the countries that, that they represent. And if there's a moment in time, uh, you know, if, if, if it looked like the army was going to rebel uh, or the police were going to riot through the streets of the capital, the very actions, the words of, say, the British ambassador or the American ambassador can either inflame things or can actually help to suppress them. And I think that it, it you know, without without over overstating this, there, there's somewhat of a responsibility, I think, on influential powers when people look to them for signals uh, that they use those responsibly. Uh, and I know that the U.S. Embassy in Harare takes this responsibility incredibly seriously. That's why they, they watch very carefully what they say um, and how they, how they act, because they know that people inside ZANU-PF, people in the opposition, people in the business community are looking to see, okay, what are the Americans going to do? What are the British going to do? What are the Australians going to do? Uh, and I think that whether we like it or not, we have that influence and it's a decision as, as to how strategically do we wield that. And that book is coming out uh, about now, yeah. uh, September 2015, as we speak. Exactly. And and this is going to be a, a long-run series of books all starring Judd Riker, is it? Is that your plan? Well, well right, right now I've got a four-book contract with uh, Putnam uh, Books, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House. Um, they, they're all, they're going to be, there's going to be four Judd Riker, um, uh, books at least. Uh, and, uh, the third book is called, is, is already almost, almost completed. It's called Ghosts of Havana. And you can guess, uh, where that takes place. Okay. So that's moving away from your beloved Africa to 
Cuba. I'm it guessing. is. I didn't want all crises to be uh, in the continent. So it's sort of, you know, I, I still love Africa. There's a little bit of Angola in the Cuba story, uh, of course. Uh, but I, I don't want uh, to be pigeonholed as, as only uh, that Judd Riker only goes to solve problems in Africa. He actually goes uh, anywhere that there's uh, anywhere he's sent. So to what extent is what you're trying to do to um, change your readers' attitudes to Africa? I, you know, is, Africa, is, Africa and Africans uh, are portrayed quite sympathetically in your book, as, as you would expect. Is, is part of this you, you using fiction to challenge people's presumptions about you know, how effective America is and ineffective Africans are, for example? <laughs> Well, you know, I certainly wanted to write a mainstream thriller for ordinary people who might not think of Africa except what they, you know, except seeing disaster news on CNN. Um, I've been an Africa junkie um, since I was a student there 25 years ago in Zimbabwe. I, you know, I think my family members, some of them thought I was kind of weird that I had this Africa obsession. Um, and now that Africa is becoming more important to the West than ever before for security, for economic and for cultural exchange reasons, it just seemed to me logical that mainstream thrillers, which a lot of people like to read, uh, why wouldn't you have more of them set in Africa? Frankly, it was a little bit tough. I, I had a couple of agents early on say these stories, you know, your, your story is great, but I don't think that this is, I was looking for um, an American agent at the time. You know, I don't think American audiences really are ready for books set in Africa. Um, I think that's changing. We're seeing more, but it's still, I still think it's sort of still out there. So there's a famous Granter article, How to Write About Africa, Mm -hmm. um, uh, Binyavanga when Nana, Talking, you know, every you have to have wild animals, right? And, right. All Africans have to be tall and skinny, or they they have to be, um, yeah. you know, very short. And you know, there's a kind of there's a set of caricatures about uh, Africa in fiction, which um, How to Write About Africa brilliantly uh, sets out. Were you were you conscious of that? Did you have that pinned up on your notice board as you were writing? <laughs> Uh, how, how to avoid those things or not not to reinforce them or yeah you know it's one of those things i think when you work on africa for a long time you you're always you always sort of got your radar out for clichés um i'm not sure i avoided it entirely um one issue that i definitely struggled with is what some people call the white savior complex well are you writing another story about some american that comes in and saves the day and uh, the way that I dealt with it is that in the golden hour, Judd Riker actually confronts this head on. He's he's in a helicopter flying uh, uh, through the Sahara Desert and he's wondering, you know, am I becoming a caricature of everything I hate? Am I falling into this white white savior complex um, that he himself has been trying to uh, trying to dispel? Um, and, you know, I, I, he doesn't resolve that. <laughs> Um, and I think that's probably true that I'm not, I, I haven't resolved that. I, I thought about making the, the protagonist, uh, an African character. I just didn't think I could pull it off. 
Um, you know, I am who I am. I'm a, uh, middle-class suburban guy from Rochester, New York. I'm not from the streets of Lagos. I just don't think I could have pulled that off in an incredible way. But I did actively try to make sure that there were three-dimensional African characters. There's good guys and bad guys from all different nationalities. Um, and, uh, and tried to portray, uh, you know, Africa the way that I uh, have experienced it. Um, as, uh, as an academic, as a diplomat, as a tourist, um, and tried to do that as accurately as I could. So it's an interesting choice to use fiction to <clears throat> convey your ideas, um, to, re- to reach an audience about, about them. And you've obviously, you know, there are some themes, one of them we've just talked about, about, uh, the way the American system works. Um, you're also obviously um, conveying messages in, in the character of Judd Riker about the use of analysis and data in making decisions and, you know, to what extent. It, so why choose fiction as as your vehicle for this? Is that just to reach a bigger audience or a different audience? Or did you were you able to write in fiction things that you wouldn't have been able to convey in some other way? Yeah, I, I think in a very practical sense, if I was writing this as nonfiction, um, I just I would have to be extremely careful about classified information and what, what I was revealing and personal relationships with former colleagues that I wouldn't want to burn. Um, in fiction, you can say whatever you like. Um, it's much, much easier. Um, and you can also create much more of, uh, you know, you, it's easier to create tension. Uh, the reality is that Fighting in meetings and writing competing memos is just not very compelling uh, uh, narrative. Um, so you can make it much more uh, exciting through fiction. Um, you know, I but you but you can also exaggerate, right? And you can say you, you, you're not accountable for being for telling the truth at that point. Yeah. And you, <laughs> you know, you can exaggerate. Uh, at the same time, you know. The reality in many places is just crazier and more outrageous than what you can dream up in fiction. Um, so I didn't find, you know, I, 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 what was I found constraining from fiction is that I wanted to write a story that my friends back at the State Department or people that are working in the White House now that were there, they would still find it credible. I did not want, you know, people, uh, you know, doing the face palm when they read this and say, you know, Todd should have known better. So, so that was definitely in my mind um, uh, as I wrote it. And is it credible that, I mean, this reflects my lack of understanding of how State Department works. Do they actually bring in people like Judd Riker, um, you know, th- this quant academic who comes in and tells them under, tries, tries to model under what circumstances a coup will succeed or fail and so on? Is that... Does that ever happen? And what hap- if it does happen, what happens to people like Judd Riker <laughs> in a place like State Department? Well, it, it's actually not uncommon for academics to get pulled into special, um, in, into government positions, usually just on a temporary basis. Um, you know, Jeremy Weinstein, who's our friend and colleague and is one of the leading scholars on, uh, on guerrilla warfare in Africa, uh, was has been pulled in multiple times into the White House. He was just uh, Samantha Power's deputy at the at the UN. Um, so it's not uh, it's not uncommon at all for for academics to 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 find themselves in positions 
uh, of influence. Um, and it's also not uncommon for special offices to be created. So in the, in the story, The Golden Hour, Judd Riker comes in, he shows this, the, his data models, and he's, he's named head of this new special office called the Crisis Reaction Unit. And I use the, um, the government uh, acronyms S slash CRU. Well, it was based in my head. I had something called S slash CRS, which was something created under, under Condoleezza Rice at State which was the state office um, for the coordinator for reconstruction and stabilization. And what that was a kind of special office brought in to try to be cross-cutting uh, for civilian responses after the war, uh, after different wars or after some kind of um, disaster. Uh, and they dealt with, SCRS dealt with a lot of the bureaucratic politics that Judd Riker has to deal with. In fact, I gave a book talk to the SCRS crowd, and it was a little bit, it was half book talk, half therapy session where people really wanted to unload uh, some, some of their, you know, some of their worst stories about this. Um, so, so none of that is is uncommon uh, at all. Um, what I think doesn't really happen is that you don't get data models really impacting policy uh, in the way that uh, that it's presented in the book. And actually. Uh, Judd Riker finds out that for all of his clever data models that got him the job, nobody wants to listen to any of that, which is absolutely the case. Right. Um, so to, to what extent do, do these researchers, does the, do these external ideas influence policy? You, you know, people, you set up this office. It, it's the kind of thing that seems like a good idea um, to have this external expert. But do they, you know, again, perhaps I'm projecting the UK civil service. I can, you know, I can imagine that that's a solution to a political problem, which is, oh, we'll set up some office. And then that's the last you hear of them. And meanwhile, the system con continues. So to what extent do people like Judd Riker um, really um, begin to influence policy and, and change it? Uh, and to what extent are these just um, uh, decorations on a on a system that is ignoring them? There's some sense in the book that, you know, Judd Riker kind of only begins to understand halfway through what's really going on, and that he's excluded from lots of things. Right. So it's so th there are mechanisms for getting research into the policy process within the State Department. The Secretary has a special office called the Policy Planning Office. And the head of that meets directly with the secretary and gets to say whatever he or she likes. And their team, it's, it's a mix of outsiders and, and, uh, career foreign service. But the idea is really to try to not be stuck in your day to day bureaucracy, but to bring new ideas into the process. Um, that works well sometimes. Um, uh, sometimes not. Um, but like any special office, you know, the other offices uh, react almost, uh, I, I would compare it to, uh, you know, an organ transplant where the host body is sort of rejecting right. it. And they do whatever they can to keep these, uh, these guys with their wacky ideas out of their, out of their business. Um, and that's really what Judd Riker finds is that he comes in, he's very beholden to the Secretary of State's Chief of Staff, who's his, his patron. Um, and he needs to use this, the chief of staff to get anything done, even to get invited to, to the meetings he's supposed to be in. Um, so that's where he's got to be quite clever in figuring out, okay, uh, nobody wants me here. How can I still have an influence? So, 
you said earlier that you'd had some difficulty persuading American publishers that writing books set in Africa was uh, was going to sell. Um, but it has sold well, hasn't it? And it, it appears to have been a success. Is that, um, it, it's obviously because it's a brilliantly written, marvellous book, but is it also because Africa is becoming more mainstream? Because the, do you think this, there is going to be more of a market for this kind of thing? I think there is. Uh, we are seeing more books uh, written um, set in Africa. My my publisher, Putnam, has uh, four or five different thrillers now set in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so that's, I think, positive. I think you're seeing African, uh, partially because of the large and growing um, uh, African expatriate community in the United States, particularly Nigerians, uh, you're seeing a lot more uh, African culture becoming more more mainstream. Um, uh, you know, we've seen a real uh, success of of African authors in the United States, um, and I think that's all just making it more normal, less exotic, uh, and that you know somebody at at, uh, at the airport on their way to the beach might pick up a, a book set in, uh, you know, Zimbabwe or Mali and not think that that was weird, um, which might have been the case 10 years ago. This has been something that has been part of your um, your think tank work too, your, your work at CGD, which is about um, normalizing people's attitudes to Africa, particularly with respect to people thinking about investment and trade and so on. That's right. To, to what extent do you um, think that you know the the danger is that we all get sucked into a narrative about you know Africa rising and yeah. uh, and so on um that is wishful thinking that is you know people like you and me who work in development um hoping that if we talk Africa up that it will that will be self fulfilling uh, to what extent do you think um particularly investment perceptions about Africa are, are lagging behind the reality and to what extent do you think Actually, they just genuinely are ups and downs, and you know, investors are right to be skeptical. <laughs> well, there, there definitely are ups and downs, as there are, you know, in all in all regions. What, what I would hope is that we would treat the countries of Africa in Washington D.C. We would treat them just like we think of any other region. It's not special. It doesn't need special promotion, but it's also it doesn't need our pity. Uh, we don't, you know. I would like to think that we would be developing relationships uh, and partnerships with foreign governments based on our mutual interests, that the way we think about what does America want to do in Thailand uh, would be no different than the way we think about Kenya. Um, you know, I think that it's just gotten treated first uh, with such disregard, um, particularly once the Cold War was over, we had no idea if we had any interests what, uh, whatsoever. Um, uh, but I think just as worse, as, just as bad as, uh, as total negligence is treating it like some special stepchild that needs to be, uh, you know, needs to be held uh, with kid gloves or something. Um, so I would like to see, you know, the agenda of the United States um, on the security side and on the economic side just think about Africa through the same lens that we would look at other regions of the world, and that uh, and that would be based on uh, on our mutual interests. Um, and and to what extent does uh, it, does culture um, inhibit that? I mean, you you are 
you know, contributing through writing a work of fiction which you hope will um, normalise the way people think about Africa. To what extent do you think that Hollywood and fiction and other kind of the way we, the way Africa is treated in literature and culture has contributed to our inability or unwillingness so far to to treat African countries in the way we would treat other countries. Well, unlike Britain, which has a long uh, history with Africa and lots of of uh, young Britons, you know, visit Africa as completely normal. That was just not. It's becoming less less unusual but it's just not the case for the united states it's further away we just don't have those historical links um and certainly 25 years ago when i went uh, as a college student to africa uh, i was the only one i knew that was doing that um i do i still cringe when i watch uh regular american tv and there's some african issue that's that's thrown up there and it's it's still treated like uh you know like mars um, and, uh, you know, I still think there, there's a long way to go. Uh, but the more people, I, I believe the more that regular people see Africa as just another place, it's not a disaster. It's got its ups and downs. It's got its good and bad. Um, that, uh, that you'll see people just treat it like anywhere else. Um, and I think a big part of that is the incredibly, um, impressive, uh, diaspora that we have in the United States from Africa. Um, they're, they're the most educated immigrant group that we have and among the most successful immigrant groups that we have. And that's really changed as people get to know, uh, Africans, particularly, you know, a country like Nigeria, which has such stigma. Um, you know, when people get to know Nigerians that when their neighbors are Nigerians, they, that, that helps to reframe, uh, perceptions quite a bit. Can we talk a bit about how you go about writing a book? Um, I mean, part of this is about how you manage your time. I'm going to ask you that in a sec. But I, you know, I I was um, uh, really impressed by how well written it is. Oh, thank uh, you. And well, uh, you know, uh, I knew you were a smart person, and I knew you read books. But there are a set of skills to do with writing books, I guess. And did you go on a fiction course? Did did you did your publisher help you, or are you just good at writing? You know, does it just turn out that this is something you're good at? How did you learn the skills to write a work of fiction? Well, uh, the first book, I was completely making it up. I just I actually gave my. I decided one day I was going to write a novel. I'm going to do it for fun. I actually gave myself. I said I'm going to give myself five years to do it. I'll try and do it in little bits and pieces in the morning here and there, whenever I could grab some time. And I did it, and I set it down for two or three months, and then come back. and um, And it took about three, three and a half years to finish it. Um, and uh, but once I had a contract and I had an editor. Uh, I had to be much, much more disciplined about it. Um, my editor, wonderful. I've already learned so, you know, we've now, we've just finished editing through three books. I've learned so much about how you take complicated stories, but make them, uh, easy for readers to follow. Um, and just so much for my, my editor, Neil Nyron. Um, but I've had to be extremely, extremely disciplined now because I'm on a delivery schedule uh, every 12 months uh, for a new right. book. 
Um, and I've had to go from completely winging it. You know, when I started, I actually had no idea how it was going to end for the golden hour. For books two, three, and four, I've outlined, mapped out exactly what's going to happen before I write the first word. Um, and that, 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 that's sort of just learning as I go, as, as I'm going. And, and in doing that, are you having to make sacrifices either in terms of, you know, thinking about the, the color and, and, you know, the, your, your, as you crank out, my sense with some, you know, authors as they become successful is that, you know, it all gets shopped out to interns and they just kind of crank out the formula and you, you lose a lot of the texture that made the original books interesting and fun. And also, are you having to make sacrifices in terms of accessibility and story, you know, that you, you start to think about what does the audience want rather than what do I want to tell them about or rail against or, you know, shout about? Yeah. Uh, well, so far, I don't have an intern or there's no team. It's still just me. <laughs> um, so I hope I haven't sacrificed anything. Um, you know, I think you want to always keep your ideas fresh. Um, you know, I just uh, just the other uh, last weekend, I got what I think is a brilliant idea for book five. I wasn't sure I was going to write book five, but now I'm very excited to do it. Um, so you want to keep you definitely want to keep your ideas uh, fresh, but you also, I'd say in thinking about the audience, it's less about really what I think people want than not being self-indulgent about what you want to tell them. Uh, so I recognize that I'm an Africa junkie and I could go deep on lots of issues that most people would not find very interesting. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think that's the balance that, that, that you try to strike. If you're not excited about the story, that's going to come out in the writing. Um, so, you know, I think you have to keep it fresh. You have to keep yourself excited by that. Some of that is not knowing exactly what's, you know, where it's going to go, what, what's going to happen to your, to your lead characters. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, don't, I, I, I guess that's, that, that's something all writers will struggle with. And how do you do this and keep down a full-time job? Not just any old full-time job, but as CGD's chief operating officer, you know, I, I see this in a minor way with, with the Europe program of CGD. You have a much bigger uh, set of challenges to manage. How do you combine these uh, two uh, quite challenging roles? So I, I keep a very strict calendar. I put writing time for writing fiction on my calendar. Um, I do it uh, three or four times a week. I put a 90-minute block, um, usually very early in the morning. So I'll typically write from, say, 5 to 6.30 or 5.30 um, uh, to 7 in the morning. Um, I'm fresh. I'm freshest early in the morning. The house is quiet. Um and then the other thing that I do is I, I use an app on my phone called Remember the Milk, which I think I learned about from you, Owen, mm. um, which I use when I ha if I have ideas during the day, it all goes into that app. And so then when I sit down to work, I've got a list of all the ideas that I, ha I had since the last time I wrote. Uh, and it's amazing that I'll look at this list, there's three or four items usually on it, and I can't remember any of them. If I, you know, <laughs> if I hadn't written it down, they would all be lost. Uh, so I, I always feel like I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to trick my stupid future self, which won't remember any of this. So I, between those two, between the calendar uh, and my iPhone app, 
that's that's how I manage it. And do you find now when you you know are daydreaming on a on the metro or the thing you think about when you wake up is mainly about what Judd Riker is going to do next, or is it about what Todd Moss is going to write a paper about, uh, looking at the you know ex- how to create jobs in Africa or how to get Africa to use its oil wealth uh, better? Uh, I, I I I do both. Um, okay. you know, I think on the subway when I'm, you know, I've got 15 minutes of white noise, uh, in, in my own head, I'm probably thinking more about the fiction. Um, when I'm in the office working, it's pretty easy to block that out. And, uh, yeah, you have to say that. Right. Well, you, you, ha- you have to do that. <laughs> you know, it actually drives, it drives my family a little crazy. I, I'm pretty, uh, weird in that I can block out noise. I can sit in the kitchen. I've got three kids. And they can all be making breakfast and arguing and rushing around. And I can be staring at my laptop and I will not hear a word. Uh, so I can do that, uh, you know, wh- wherever I am. And if the fiction writing, if you continue to be inspired, you, you've told us that, you know, you've just had an inspirational idea for novel number five. Could you imagine doing this full time, quitting your CGD job? This, this, becomes, this becomes your career? You know, I, I, I would, I would hope not, uh, in that, you know, the, keeping, keeping a, a large foot in the policy world is where I get ideas. And I think I would find it quite isolating just, just writing, uh, fiction all day. Um, I love, you know, being in the mix on the policy world. I think that's, that's what inspires me. Um, it's also, super helpful on the fiction side. I think you quickly would lose touch with what was going on in Washington if I was just, uh, you know, in a cabin somewhere uh, typing away uh, with with nothing but me and my imagination. So I, I hope that I'll be able to to continue to do both. I mean, I guess if the book somehow became, you know, fabulously successful, uh, that there'd be a time where I'd have to make that decision. But we're, oh, and we're far from... <laughs> we're away from that. From having to make uh, make such a call. And you say you're learning things from the policy world that you bring into your fiction. What about the other way around? To what extent is writing fiction helping you think about what you do in the policy world, in the, both in the way the ideas you have, but especially in the way you convey ideas and reach audiences? Is there have you learned much from this that those of us who who work in think tanks should be thinking about? I think the best example of that is that if you're when you're writing, you're actually thinking explicitly about your audience. Uh, what what do they know already? What do I need to tell them? We we say that we do this in the policy world that we write for policymakers or we write for our academic colleagues, but I think we we usually don't. <laughs> um, and when you when you really um, when the commercial success of your novel depends on not, on not making it too confusing for your audience, you're you're much stricter about making sure that you're clear, uh, that you're you don't have unnecessary uh, plot lines. You know, you're not trying to confuse people. You're trying to make it as as clear as possible. That does apply, I think, in the policy world as well. There's no point in trying to show how clever you are to a treasury official if what you're saying is going to undermine uh, the message you're trying to get to them. So I, I think it's just about clarity and brevity. And to what extent uh, has having an, 
you you say said you have a fabulous editor. Do, does um, is one lesson that we all need a fabulous editor um, to to keep at least to teach us that. that I mean, in some in some ways, we do at CGD. We have uh, an excellent colleague called Rajesh Merchandani who uh, edits us very well. But is is that part of the message that you actually need some you need some internal critics to help you express yourself more clearly? Well, it doesn't have to be your editor, but you clearly need a circle of insiders that you can trust who are going to give you honest feedback. Um, and not just tell you how wonderful it is. You actually need people who are going to say, this doesn't make any sense. Um, when I write fiction, um, I've got three or four friends uh, that I send the first draft to that give me uh, blunt feedback. My wife is my, is my best, single best editor by far. I'm lucky she's also a writer. I'm much, uh, much clearer writer than, than I am. So she's, she's great on that score. And then having, I mean, having an editor like, Neil at Putnam, who's been doing this for 30 years, and, um, you know, he can help untangle time inconsistencies or some convoluted plot where I've gotten confused. He can untangle it all. That's, that's of course, super helpful. In the policy world, it's, we, we have peer review. We have our colleagues that are kind of that, um, that filter. But you absolutely have to have people um, that will give you honest feedback. Um, especially people that are willing to give you bad news, like this is no good. And that's, it sounds like that's terrible news, but it's actually the most helpful uh, feedback you can get. And is there going to be a Hollywood version of Judd Riker? Is, <laughs> is this going to be, a, uh, I don't is this going to be a film franchise? Yet. I don't know yet. I, I mean, I think uh, the goal, the, the first three books will, would certainly make a terrific television series. And, um, we're still at the beginning of this. My agent, who is also um, working with uh, television and film rights, uh, has told me to just be patient. The first book is is uh, hasn't been out a year. The second book is only coming out uh, in the middle of September. Uh, so I think we'll continue to explore those possibilities. What's very exciting is that you know, for films, a lot of options for films get bought and then never made. Um, uh, but the explosion in television series, uh, the fact that Netflix and others are doing original content, the cable uh, series, uh, it means that writers don't get as much money as they m- might have gotten in the past, but that the, the possible outlets for a TV series are, you know, much, much greater. Uh, and I think that would be fun, um, but I don't harbor any illusions that it's likely, since uh, everybody that writes a novel hopes that it'll get turned right. into to, into something on the big screen. And when you imagine Judd Riker on the big screen, who what's in your head about the actor that would be playing Judd Riker? Who who is it? I, I'm just trying to understand how you visualize Judd Riker. <laughs> Well, Judd Riker, he's not, uh, you know, he's not your typical, uh, thriller, uh, adrenaline action hero who's running around with guns and beating people up. He's a, he's a nerd. He's a data nerd. Um, uh, so, you know, I've, uh, I, I, Johnny Depp, maybe? Well, I think Judd Riker's a bit younger than Johnny, Johnny Depp. Uh, I have lately been thinking, I know this is going to sound a little strange, but, um, uh, Zach Galifianakis. Uh, has 
you know, he has that, I think that right mix of quirkiness and smarts and is just a little bit weird uh, that I think he, he could be good. My wife thinks that that's a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> who does she, who does she, she wants, even visualize? Somebody who's, uh, who's, uh, you know, a bit more of a heartthrob, I think. <laughs> I'm, I'm more she, she wants to be married to Matt Damon rather than yeah um, you know Matt Damon Ben Affleck or um, uh, um, you know somebody somebody that uh, you know that that might be in in uh, uh, in, the, in some of the the, the fashion magazines. Uh, One of the nice things if it did get made for TV or movie is that it, there are lots of strong women roles. There are, uh, there are. And you know, I, when I've been doing radio interviews, almost everybody asks me about the strong women in the, in the story. I mean, most of all is his wife, is Judd's wife, Jessica, who plays uh, a bigger role uh, as the series goes on. Uh, but also, you know, it wasn't, that wasn't a conscious decision. Unlike where I was trying to be very particular about making sure that the African characters were portrayed accurately and three-dimensionally, it came completely naturally uh, to have strong female characters because, you know, the Secretary of State in the book is a, is a is a is a woman. Of course, I worked for Condi Rice. Uh, we've had Hillary Clinton, Madeleine Albright. That just seemed completely normal. Um, all of my bosses professionally have been strong women. I've, I was raised in a house of strong women. I live in a house of a, uh, run by a strong woman. So that just seemed totally normal. Uh, but you're right. That would that would create lots of opportunities for great characters uh, in a TV series or a movie. Todd Moss, thanks for joining me on Development Drums. Great. Thanks, Owen. You've been listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Barder, at the Centre for Global Development, and my guest today has been Todd Moss, Senior Fellow and Chief Operating Officer and author of Minute Zero, a new book that is in the Judd Riker series, that his first book, The Golden Hour, was published last year. Thanks for listening to Development Drums. Your got broke, it would be a star.